Sorry, I'm late. Hi, Pondy, how we doing? Cool. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that, and we will be in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, uh, as we wrap up um, what has been a remarkable week studying this individual named Daniel. Now, hey, before we start, let me say a few things. Number one, let me say thank you. We came into this week and none of you knew me at all. And yet you have sat for five and now it will be six times uh, as I have spoken very loud and very quickly uh, and I have, I have said things to you uh, that are often hard to hear. And here's what I hope for you. Uh, like some of you will go back to your church and your seniors, you're going off to college or you're just wrapping up high school or you'll be here the rest of high school. And here's my hope that the rest of your life, wherever you go, that you will always surround yourself with people who are willing to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. The most immature people I know surround themselves with people that tell them everything they want to hear. And the most mature, godly, God-honoring people I know are the people who surround themselves with pastors and teachers and Bible study leaders and older men and women who love Jesus and love them and are willing to speak truth to them. So my hope is that you will continue to surround yourself with people who tell you what you want, to, what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Uh, and, and then let me just express my gratitude uh, for the people I've gotten to talk to. So many of you, it's been so encouraging, such a blessing, such a wonderful week for me. In fact, it's been such a blessing. Do you mind if I take a little group photo here of all of you? Would that be okay? That'd be fun. Let's do that here. So I want you all to smile. We're going to take the photo on three. One, two, three. Uh, okay, well, I'm just going to get this side and this side. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not cool enough to do a panorama. All right. All right, so not a chance. All right. Here's what you remember for the story. Our story in the book of Daniel begins with a war. Like many great stories in human history, there's a battle, there's a war for the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is being sacked by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon. The Babylonian Empire is attacking the city of Jerusalem. The war is going on and God, the Yahweh, the one who sits in heaven, the one who is enthroned above all things, the one who is who he is, he picks a winner. And the winner is not the people of God and Judah, the winner is Babylon and their King Nebuchadnezzar. The people of God are shipped off to Babylon. They live in exile. They live in a place, a place that is exile, a place that is uncomfortable, a place that is unfriendly, a place that is uncompromising. And what we've seen throughout the week is how the people of God, Daniel and his three friends, live with resilience. You'll remember back to Monday morning that these three friends and Daniel, they're teenagers. They're just where you are in life. They're not much older than you. They're people who said, I want to live in such a way that I honor Yahweh and stay faithful to him in the midst of a wild and a crazy culture. And we've seen God be sovereign. We've seen God save. We've seen the ways that God has moved in and amongst these people. And my desire tonight is singular. I have one hope as you go down the mountain. Remember at the very beginning, I said the point isn't that you would live the same life Daniel lived. You won't. That's not your life. That's not your context. But my goal is that you would trust the same God that Daniel trusted. And that as you go down the hill tomorrow, you would be prepared to walk with faithfulness, to walk in confidence, and to live resiliently in a culture that is described in the scriptures as exile. Because here's what I know. You're going home tomorrow to a place that's uncomfortable. And you might say, no, 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 my bed is very comfortable, my family's very comfortable, I'm going back to mama's cooking, that's very comfortable. That may be so. But here's what I want you to know. 
If you are going back down the hill tomorrow into the rest of the world and you feel totally comfortable with the music, with the movies, with the television shows, with the way people speak and act and spend money and have sex, and you're comfortable with all of that, then you're not walking after Jesus. Because walking after Jesus is going to make you uncomfortable with what you see. There will be things you see on your phone tomorrow that should make you uncomfortable. There are going to be things people say to you when you get back this weekend that should make you uncomfortable. Exile is a place of discomfort for those of us who are following Jesus. Why? Our home and our hope is not this world. Our hope is heaven. It makes you uncomfortable. Listen, I know you're going back to a place that's unfriendly. Do you know that it's not lost on any of us that some of you are going to go home to a family, tell them all about what happened at camp this week, be very excited, and your dad's going to mock you and belittle you for what happened at Jesus camp? Do you know that I know that some of your moms won't even really care, or at worst, they'll be hostile to you for what you actually say? I know that some of you are going to post things about it on your social media about how Jesus moved in your life, and someone's going to make a snarky comment about you being brainwashed or narrow or bigoted or silly for believing in God. We live in a culture that is not friendly toward Jesus. You want to know the reason they're not friendly toward Jesus? Because no one wants to be told that Jesus is actually in charge. Remember I said you don't make Jesus the Lord of anything? He already is the Lord of everything. And when you go home declaring that, people are not going to like that. Like, I need you to prepare yourself for discomfort. I want to prepare you for an unfriendly culture that's not going to be excited about all the things you're excited about. And then I want you to be prepared for an uncompromising culture. I want you to be prepared to go back to a place that will demand that you believe in their values, not the values of Scripture. I want you to be prepared to go back to a place that is going to demand that you believe what they believe about sex, about gender, about life, uh, about mercy, about justice, about goodness, about everything in this world. I want you to know there's a culture that is going to demand conformity, no compromise. And you are going back to that tomorrow. And tonight, my singular agenda, as I said, is to fill you with confidence that you can trust the same God Daniel trusted. And that whatever you're walking into tomorrow, whatever you're going down the hill to experience, the same God that went with Daniel, that same Yahweh, the God who is who he is, goes with you. So Daniel, chapter 9, verse 1, let's finish our week strong says this, it says, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. <laughs> Do you see what's happening here? We got Darius, we got the next guy who's in charge. You notice the whole story of Daniel, if you keep reading, you'll just see another king and another king and another king because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and kings rise and kings go up and presidents go up and presidents go down and governors go up and governors go down, but the Lord our God reigns forever. He is eternal and no one can slip him off his throne. Why do I want you to have confidence going forward? Because I don't care who the governor of our state is, the president of the United States of America, or the principal of your school is. Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven, and no matter who gets to sit in the authorities of this world, none of them get to sit next to God on his throne in heaven. That's what you have confidence in. It says, in the first year of Darius, king of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Remember, the Babylonian kingdom falls. The Persian and Mede empire comes in. And it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from Scripture, according to the word given to the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So what does Daniel come to the conclusion of? Daniel's studying Scripture, and what becomes clear to him is that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now what does that mean? That means that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and they were going to be in exile for 70 years. Let's imagine right now Daniel is 18 years old. That means Daniel comes to the conclusion that Jerusalem is not going to be rebuilt until he is 88 years old. 88 years old. And there's this moment that's got to happen for Daniel where he realizes 
this is my life now. Maybe he had this little bit of hope inside of him that maybe things would change and he would get to go back to Jerusalem and he would get to go back to the promised land and the exile would be over. And Daniel realizes in this moment, this is his life. There is no backing out. This is the way it is until he goes home to be with God. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know no matter what happens in our state, in your school, or in our country, this is your life now. Like, I think some of us have this, like, imaginary world where, like, suddenly everyone will become a Christian and all the laws will be Christians and all the television shows and movies will be Christians and everyone will just suddenly randomly become Christians in our lifetime and that way we won't have to worry about people opposing us. And I need you to get that out of your mind. Jesus never promised us that this world would love us. In fact, he promised the opposite. He said, if you follow me faithfully, the world will hate you. This is your life now. And I know for some of you that sounds like, well, that's the most negative message I've ever heard. You're supposed to tell us to go home and take the hill and it's all going to be better. And listen, I believe we can. I believe God's people can change the world through God's spirit. And yet what we must accept is simply this, that we are never going to be living in a place that is perfectly comfortable, perfectly friendly, and perfectly aligned with us until we're in heaven. And so once we accept that, we're actually steeled and comfortable and ready for the challenge that's ahead of us. It's like this... um, Last year, my brother signed me up uh, for Christmas. He gave me a Christmas present. It was the worst Christmas present he's ever given me. I opened up the little present and it says, congratulations, I've signed you up for a Spartan race. I was like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, it's great. We run through these hills, through the mud, and you climb over obstacles and swim under rivers, and you carry heavy rocks. I was like, that's a gift? He's like, yeah, we're going to do this together. So sure enough, I get ready to do it, and that day it's raining and it's cold. It's the middle of November, and I get ready to go, and I start the race. And can I tell you what happened? I had the best time of my life. And I did not expect to have the best time of my life. But what actually happened to me is I came into that race knowing this is going to be cold, it's going to be wet, it's going to be miserable, I'm going to be out of breath, I'm going to be tired. And because I understood it was going to be hard, I actually found joy in the midst of it. And when you go home, if you start to think like it's going to be perfect, it's going to be easy, everyone's going to celebrate what happened at camp, everyone's going to think Jesus is awesome, you're in for a rude awakening. But if you have eyes wide open to know, you know what, there are good men and women who will celebrate with me and care about what happened at camp, but there is a world out there that hates God because he's in charge, not them. And I'm walking into that. It actually allows you to experience joy in the midst of it. And how does Daniel understand this? It says that Daniel knows this is going to be the rest of his life. My question for you is how does Daniel know this is going to be the rest of his life? And the answer is right here. We don't have to guess. It says he knows this because he understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to the Jeremiah the prophet. In other words, Jeremiah understands the world he's going to live in for the rest of his life because Jeremiah understands the Bible. Jeremiah understands his assignment for the rest of his life because Jeremiah has read the word. And if you remember what I said Monday night, it's this, that the word of God allows the people of God to know the will of God. I made a challenge to you Monday night. I wonder how many of you have done it. I said there was a dock where I met God and I made a commitment. I'm going to read your word. It's part of my life now forevermore. And it's January 1st of 2004. That stuck and it's changed my whole life. And I said, do you go find your own dock this week? And I wonder how many of you have done that. And I wonder how many of you have had that moment before the Lord where you can say, God, I'm all in on your word. I want it to be at the center of my life. Because here's the good news. If you haven't done that yet, we're not done with camp. Before you go to bed tonight, have a moment with the Lord. Get up early in the morning. Go down to the lake. Have that moment with your creator. Because I want you to know if you want to understand the times and understand what God has called you toward in this world, you're going to have to do it through his word. And here's what I know is going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, your life is going to get incredibly noisy. 
your life is going to get incredibly loud. You'll go down the hill, and uh, your youth pastors know this. It's actually the most tragic moment of the trip. Uh, you're all on the bus or in the van, and you're all chit-chatting and talking, and it's like this great camaraderie. And then you get like halfway down the hill, and then suddenly everyone in the bus goes, because <laughs> you got cell phone. And no one speaks for the rest of the ride. It's the most quiet part of the trip. And, and, and here's what I know. All these inputs are going to be coming. All this noise, all these messages, all this drama you missed from back home. All these things are going to be flying at you. It's going to be loud. And here's what I found in my life. When it's loud, it's hard to hear what's important. Uh, like I remember there have been times uh, with three young children in my house where I'm in the house and the television's on and the children are playing and it's crazy and it's loud and then my phone rings and it's someone from the church and I need to take the call. And if I try to take the call in the house, it never works. It never works because it's chaos and it's loud and there's so much input coming in. So what do I have to do? I have to step outside onto my front porch where it's quiet. And then, and only then, can I hear what I need to hear. And so here's what I want to plead with you to. I want to plead with you as it gets loud tomorrow, as inputs start coming in, as life starts to get busy, as school starts to come up in this next month, that you would carve out time for you to be quiet before the Lord. Because your quiet times allow you to turn down the volume on the world and turn up the volume on God. And that's what you need. You need, just like Daniel, to listen to his word. And I want to plead with you one final time to be a people who move the Bible to the center of your life. Verse 3 says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So in this moment, Daniel realizes I'm going to be in exile for the rest of my life. And the first thing he does, not his last resort, but his first action, is to turn to the Lord in prayer. It says that he fasts. And I want to pitch this out to you. That some people think fasting is this crazy, ridiculous thing. I don't even want to think about it. Man, every major biblical character on through Jesus fasts. And I want to encourage you to explore that in your own life, and your own spirituality as you walk with Jesus. It says he fasts. And if you don't know what that means, talk to your parents, talk to your youth pastor in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. In other words, what we're going to read tonight is the transcript of Daniel's prayer before the Lord. He realizes that this exile is going to go on for the rest of his life, and therefore, here's how he's going to behave. We're going to read a prayer tonight. The entire sermon is going to be out of a prayer. And here's what I'm convinced of, that the content of your prayers tells me what you believe about the character of our God. The content of your prayers tells me everything I need to know about the character of our God. Because you know what happens for a lot of people when they pray? They pray things that they don't even need to pray about. They, they're up here at Hume Lake Christian Camps, and in the morning they're like, Lord, would you just please give us a wonderful day? And it's like we're in the most beautiful place in the world. You're already going to have a wonderful day. You pray things like, Lord, just bless this cheeseburger and fries and milkshake and gummy worms to my body. I pray, oh, Lord. In Jesus' name, right? And that's what you do. And like, again, there's not a problem with saying, Lord, give us a great day. There's not a problem with saying, Lord, would you bless this food to our bodies? I just worry that for some of you, the content of your prayer shows that you think at best, God can make your life marginally better. Let me say that again. I think some of you think your prayers at best can make your life marginally better. And that is a tragedy. Because if you only knew how powerful prayer was, to change the reality around you, you would be on your face before God asking for so much 
more. It's like this years ago, um, I went on a conference with me and another guy, and he was an older gentleman at the church. We got to the conference, checked into our hotel, and there was only one bed. And I was like, him and I weren't going to share a bed. That wasn't going to happen. So I was like, you have the bed. I'll take the couch over here. And so we get in. We go to the conference. We come back at night. He gets into the bed. I go onto the couch, and there's not a blanket but I'm fine because, like, I got a sweatshirt, and I just run hot anyway. Like, I'm always sweating. So it's like, I'm fine. No worries. And, and so I lay down on the couch. He lays down in the bed. And it's one of those hotel rooms that, like, basically only has two settings for the thermostat, like off or Arctic breeze, right? That's it. And so it's just Arctic breeze all night. And suddenly this guy who's like, I'm fine. I don't need anything. is freezing. And the whole night I'm, like, putting pillows on top of myself. Like, maybe this will warm my body. And I'm just freezing. I don't sleep at all. It's miserable night. We wake up in the morning and he asks if I'm all right. I said, honestly, I didn't sleep at all. I was so cold. He goes, oh man, why didn't you tell me? I said, no, you got the bed. I wanted you to have that. I was okay on the couch. He goes, no, I really wish you had told me. And I was like, no, 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 it's okay. I was like trying to be humble. He goes, no, I wish you had told me. And then he goes over to a cabinet, opens it up, and there's four spare blankets there. (sighs) I only had to ask him. If I had just asked him, I would have actually had something that would have helped me. And when I think about that story all the time, I think about all the areas of my life where I'm frustrated or I'm anxious or I'm discouraged or I'm depressed, where things aren't going the way I want. And I just think to myself, if I would only have the faith to ask God about it, he could change everything. What I want for you is for you to go home and not ask God for little things. I want you to ask God for big things because he is the sovereign king of heaven and earth. I want you to go home and get on your face and pray that your mom would come to Jesus. I want you to get on your face for your brother or your sister who's far from God and pray that God would convict their heart and turn them to repentance. I want you to pray for your school that God would do a mighty work of revival where hundreds of people would be baptized in the next two years. Do you see what I mean by big prayers? You're not just praying, God, give me a nice day and help the day to go well and help my tests to go well. You're praying that God would do a mighty work through your life. Daniel's prayer here. It's going to be so bold, so clear on who God is and what he's all about. And what I want for you to understand is that prayer changes reality. Prayer is not just something that makes you feel better. Prayer is something that changes the reality around us. And when you choose to pray like Daniel prays, you reflect the heart of a God who controls everything. It says this in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. If you have a Bible in front of you, would you just underline the word two words, my God? And here's my question for you. I wonder if any of you have made the transition from the Lord God to the Lord my God. See, something should be happening in your spirit and your soul by the time you're in high school, where it's no longer just the God who's out there, but it's your God. And what happens to far too many students is this, that what actually happens in your life is it's your parents' faith, and you're just kind of coasting off your parents' faith. Or it's your friend's faith, and you're just kind of coasting off her faith. But at some point, you need to transition from your life to my family goes to church to I go to church. And even if my parents are out of town, I'm going to church. And even if no one else in my family loves Jesus, I'm walking after him. I remember being in college, and I'd start going to a church. And then my parents came down from Northern California to Southern California to visit, the, visit my school, visit for the weekend. And I remember this moment where I actually got to say, Mom, Dad, I'm going to church on Sunday. Would you like to join me? It was a powerful moment in my life. And they came with me. I drove them to church. And I'll never forget this moment. They had the offering baskets that were passing through. And as the offering baskets were coming through, I took out my wallet and said, no, 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 part of my worship is giving to the Lord. And I pulled out my wallet. My dad instinctively just reached his hand over. He's like, no, 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 let me today. And I looked over at him. I was like, no, this isn't about you. This is between me and my God. I put my money in there. 
that was a moment for me. The transition from the Lord God to the Lord my God. And here's my question. When are you going to start owning your faith? When is it going to be yours? When is it going to stop being your moms, your dads, your best friends, your pastors? When are you going to get to be like Daniel who says, this is the Lord my God? goes on this way in verse 4. It says, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So here's what I want you to know. God keeps covenant love with us. Covenant love means an arrangement, an understanding, a way of relating before God where God loves us, not because of what we do, that's a contract. A contract is you put, hold up your end, I'll hold up my end, and then we'll love one another. A covenant just says we're all in no matter what. That's how God loves you. But notice what it says here, look closely. It says he keeps his covenant love with who? With those who love him. And who are the people who love God? Well, it says it right here. It's those who love him and keep his commandments. So here's what I need you to know tonight about loving God. Most people think loving God is about emotion. And I need you to know tonight that the evidence that you love God is not emotion. It's not that you feel close to him. It's not that you feel overwhelmed in worship. It's not that you're at camp and there's this feeling inside of you and that feeling is the evidence that you love God. I need you to know that you can love God and not have that feeling inside of you. In fact, I want to free some of you who are here this week at camp, and for some reason you didn't experience the emotional high you thought you were going to experience. That doesn't mean you don't love God. So many people pin their love to God on emotions, and then when the emotions aren't there, they assume that, that something's wrong with them, that they don't love God. And in fact, what I want to tell you this, that mature love actually goes much deeper than emotions. About like 13 years ago, when I met my wife, I remember that summer of 2010 when I started dating her. I remember that every time she'd walk in the door, my heart would flutter. I remember seeing her and being across the room and be like, hey, you know, like, like just like so, like kind of giddy and excited. And there was that like emotion and that feeling. And every time we'd text and every time we'd call and every time I would hug her, I would just feel like, yes, this is the best thing. Now I need you to know 13 years later, 10 years into marriage, I love my wife, but I don't have that emotion all the time. Does that mean I don't love her? Of course not. I love my wife way more now than I did 13 years ago. It's way deeper. It's way more profound. The emotion is not what makes me know that I love my wife. So if emotion is not the thing that you assess to see, do I love God, then what is it? And again, we see it right here in this text of Daniel. The evidence that you love God is not emotion. Write this down. The evidence that you love God is obedience. It's obedience. If you want to know whether or not you actually love God, examine whether or not you actually obey God. Because obedience for God is what Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. That's the evidence I want to look for in my life. Do I obey God? And that's what actually helps explain what some of you are going through right now. Some of you are going through what you have always called or what I called growing up the camp high. And so you experience this where you're like, it's a camp high, and I'm at Hume, and I feel so close to God, and it feels so wonderful. I'm so overwhelmed right now with how close and God's spirit and his presence seems to be in my life. And here's what I want to speak over you tonight. I need you to know this clearly, that you do not have a camp high. You have an obedience high. You do not have a camp high right now. You have an obedience high. What do I mean by that? 
I mean that you have chosen to do things all week. Here's how people talk about camp highs. They're like, I have no idea how it happened. I went up to camp with all my Christian friends and sat under the teaching of the word and worshiped God and prayed and got rid of all the distractions in my life and I haven't been sinning like I usually do. I've been confessing, I've been repenting, I've been in prayer, I've been in spiritual disciplines and it's shocking, I feel close to God. Like, of course you do. That's how this works. Obedience is actually what leads to that joy that's deep in our life. Obedience to Jesus, listening to God and doing what he says is actually what creates joy in our life. And you know what? I know that's just the best news. Because if you have a camp high right now, at best, you get one week a year of feeling like this. One week. If you come to winter camp, like one and a half weeks. That's all you got. If Hume Lake is the place you have to come meet with God, then you're kind of doomed because you only get to do this in high school. Maybe you come back as a leader and there's only a few more weeks in your life you can ever feel like this. But if it's not a camp high and it's an obedience high, you want to know why that's awesome? Because it means the other 51 weeks a year you can experience intimacy with Jesus. It means that you don't have to leave this behind. You can continue to walk by the Spirit and experience the joy and the life and the peace and the purpose God has for you. You are not experiencing camp high. It's an obedience high. So how do you continue to experience this? How do you continue to walk in this spirit? It's two things. Write these down. Here are the two ways you continue to experience what God has for you. The two way you live with resilience as you go down the hill. It's brilliant. It's the most brilliant, profound thing you've ever heard. Number one, you listen to God. And number two, you do what he says. End of story, period. You listen to God and you do what he says. That's what you're invited to do. Don't overcomplicate this. Don't make this some intellectual exercise. Don't make this this thing where you have to read 15 books and go to a seminar and go to a conference and watch YouTube videos. No, no, no. Just listen to what God says through his word and do what he says. Listen to God. Do what he says. Because you know what happens for so many of us? We like the first part. We don't like the second part. It's easy for us to listen to God. It's hard to do what he says. Like the observation is this, that insight is always easier than obedience. It's always easier to hear a sermon and be like, that sermon wrecked me, man. That sermon ruined me. Oh, he said the coolest things. I love what he said. See the notes right here? It was amazing. Insight is actually the easy part. Obedience is where the fruit is. Like it's easy to learn something new. It's hard to actually do it. It'd be like if you told me you're going to get in shape. You're going to get in the best shape of your life. And you're reading all the books and watching all the YouTube videos. You're following all the influencers on Instagram. You've got all this information and knowledge. And I'm like, so how's your workout program? I, I don't do that. Are, are you eating healthier? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> what you've got is insight. But insight is cheap. Insight is easy. Obedience is where growth happens. My encouragement to you going home is not just to leave camp being like, wow, that was awesome. I want you to find one specific area that the Lord your God is calling you to obey. Some of you came to the forgiveness seminar on Tuesday. Your obedience is you going home and forgiving the person who wounded you. For some of you, you have not been reading your Bible. Your obedience is becoming someone who reads the Bible daily. For some of you, obedience means giving up some sin in your life. So you need to actually talk to your parents about your pornography addiction. You need to actually talk to someone about not hanging out and not going to those parties anymore. You need to talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend at home about whether or not you can actually sustain this relationship because you're walking in obedience to Christ. And if your blood pressure just went up with me saying any of those things, that's why I say insight's easier than obedience. Because it is easy to say, oh, I feel so close to God. But actually obeying is where the growth happens. It's where the fruit happens. It says those who love God obey his commandments. Verse 5 goes on this way. It says we have sinned and done wrong. 
Do you see the confession in Daniel's heart? We've sinned, we've done wrong. We've been wicked and we've rebelled. We have turned from you with our command, from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and ancestors and to the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous on this day and we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, in all countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord, our God, is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord, our God, and kept the laws that he gave us through his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Now here's what I want you to note. I just read through that and I put emphasis on a certain word. Did you hear the word we? The word us. Over and over and over again, Daniel is praying and he's not going, God, well, I know I've sinned and I know I did something wrong. And God, I know I fell away from you and I know I need to get right with you. He kept saying we. He kept saying us. He kept saying all Israel, all Jerusalem, all the nations, all of us have sinned. And here's what Daniel understands. What Daniel understands, what you need to understand is that your relationship with God is not just about you and him. God does not just relate to you. He relates to a people. And that people is his new covenant people, his church. He relates to you as a body, as a group, as a church. And far too many Christians come up to places like Hume Lake, have an amazing experience with God, go down the hill, completely ignore their church, and go on trying to follow Jesus on their own. And it doesn't work. It never works. Like the great tragedy that will happen is that some of you have had this unbelievable experience with God in the context of your church while you're up here. You will go down the hill and two weeks from now school will start. You will get busy and you will bail on Wednesday nights or Friday nights or Sunday nights or Sunday morning or whenever your church works. Well, like for some of you, you will go home and there will be some kind of drama between a girl and a guy or some other guy or some other girl and it will stir you up in drama and you will back away from the church. And that is a great tragedy because I need you to know this clearly you have absolutely no chance of surviving exile, of thriving in the way Jesus has for you if you're trying to do this thing on your own. If you're gonna thrive, you need at least two things. And let me explain the two things this way. This week, you've had your phones up here and uh, you haven't had service. So it's been kind of an interesting experience with your phone. Um, and when you think about your phone, your phone just really needs two things to actually operate the way it's supposed to operate. Um, the first would be power. Let me just, um, by show of hands, uh, if you forgot maybe or you just didn't really have your rhythm of plugging it in, did anyone's phone die this week? Is anyone willing? Oh, quite a few of you. And isn't it wild how dramatic we are? We don't say, oh, it ran out of battery. We're like, <laughs> it died. <laughs> it is dead. It is deceased. <laughs> so your phone needs energy. It needs power. In order for your phone to work, it needs power. If this phone has no power, it is the most expensive paperweight I could possibly buy, right? It is good for nothing except a paperweight and maybe throwing at a bear. Like, that is it, right? So your phone needs power. But here's the other thing you learned this week at Hume Lake. That your phone is great. It can be powered on. But if it does not have one other thing, it is pretty much useless for anything except taking photos, listening to music. But it doesn't really accomplish the thing. You need power, but you also need a network. And that network can be data, that network can be Wi-Fi, it needs to connect to the rest of the world because you have power, but if you don't have a network, it's kind of a useless little tool. And here's what I need you to know, that if you want to function in the way God has designed you to function, if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus, if you want to be resilient in the midst of a culture that is unfriendly, that is uncompromising, and that is uncomfortable, you need two things. The first is, 
You need power. And that power comes into you the moment you call on the name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit of God fills you from heaven and lives inside of your bones. That is the power for the Christian life. Some of you experienced that power for the first time last night. You experienced God in this place. And if you're like, that was so wild, I felt like God was close. That was the Holy Spirit of God filling you up. You need power. But it's not just power. See, far too many Christians think I have power, so I'm good. It's not just power you need. You need power, and you need a network. You need a network. And that network in the New Testament has a name. And that name is the church. It's the church. That you need the church. You need the people in your youth group. You need the body of Christ that's built in around you. And again, for so many of you, what will happen after this camp is that you will go off so confident in the power that lives in you, but you will not operate in the network. And so you will never accomplish the life and the mission and the purpose that God has called you toward. And here's what I know. Yeah. Some of you have done that before. Some of you have come up to camp and you know what it's like to come up to Hume and you have this amazing experience then you drift away and then you come back next year to Hume and it's like your youth pastor gets to see you once a year. It's a lovely thing. But here's my challenge to you tonight. I'm not just challenging you, I'm calling you to something. I think some of you right now in this moment need to commit to your local church. For some of you, you love Jesus and you're all for walking with him, but church is kind of this optional thing. You go when you have time. If there's nothing else going on in your life, you'll go. If all of your friends are going, you'll go. But if your friends aren't going, you're not going to go. If anything else comes up, you're bailing on church. If you're tired, if you're, eh, you're just going to want to go tonight, you just kind of are fickle. You're just not really committed to church. And I want to change that here tonight. I want to call you to something better. And so I'm speaking to you right now if you know you're the type of person who's kind of in and out of church. You flow in and out. You know who you are. Some of you are committed, you're there every week, you're all in, this isn't for you. But right now I'm going to give an invitation, an invitation to stand for some of you who need to commit publicly before your church that you are committed as you go into this school year to be a part of this church every time you possibly can. You've been drifting, you've been in and out, you've been kind of in, kind of out, not sure, kind of exploring six different churches and maybe going to the one that's kind of least dramatic right now, but I'm just calling you to something different. I'm calling you to commit to a local body, to a network, to a church that will disciple you and challenge you and raise you up in Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't know how many of you there are, but I believe there's someone who needs to commit tonight publicly. Remember when we did the gospel invitation, we, we closed our eyes and bowed our head because we were going to make this decision before the Lord? All eyes open. All heads up. Because you're not making this decision just before God. You're making this decision before your church. And you're committing to them, to your pastor, to your friends, to your small group leader, your Bible study leader. So on three, if you know that you need to commit this year to the local church, and now is the time where you're not playing games anymore, I want you to stand to your feet in front of your church as an indication that you're all in this year. On three. One, two, three. On your feet right now. Awesome. Stay standing. So those of you who are standing right now, believe it or not, this is the easy part. The easy part is to stand in a church full of Christians who all want to go to church and say, I'm going to go to church. The hard part is you going home and remembering this moment. And I hope for your sake and for your integrity, you remember this moment. You put a stake in the ground. 
You put a note in your phone. You write something in your journal. You say, I made a commitment, and I am a man of my word. I'm a woman of my word. I'm going to go to church because I decided that that's who I am, and I want that more than I want any of the other things of this world. I love you. I'm proud of you, and here's what I know. The best possible thing for you to do is to lean in with the people of God who love you. That's how God raises you up. Now go fulfill that commitment. Take a seat. Verse 11, Daniel goes on and continues to pray. He says, therefore the curses and sworn judgment written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words that have been spoken against us and our rulers by bringing us on great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has been done like this that has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. You see how Daniel keeps saying that? The Lord is righteous in everything he does. What does that mean? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. This is our God. This is who he is. He sets the rules. He tells us what the universe is like. You can go off and believe in your own God. You can go off and believe in yourself. You can go off and believe in something else. But if you want to believe in the God of the Bible, he gets to tell you how to live. You don't get to tell you how to live. Remember, because God created you. You didn't create you. So you don't get to define you. And so what do I want you to do when you go home? I want you to have the same attention to the sin in your life that Daniel has in this paragraph. You notice how he's praying, going, God, the reason our life is a mess is because of our sin. God, we have brought this upon ourselves. And what I want for you is to know that your sin has never given anything to you. It's only taken from you. And what I want you to be is free from your sin. And some of you think you are bound by your sin. You think you're captured by it. You think you're addicted to it. You think there's no way out of it. And what I want you to know is that the moment the gospel frees you, the moment the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, you are free from your sin, even if you don't realize it. It's like this, so uh, just earlier this week, I got a text from my wife, and she said that, she said to our three children, it's hot today, so I'm going to bring you to the splash pad in Thousand Oaks, and they were so excited. They're going to the splash pad, and, and my daughters are excited, that, but my son, for some reason, decides, I do not want to go to the splash pad, and he begins throwing a fit. And he begins raging. He begins fighting against my wife, and a showdown begins. And the showdown in our house usually goes this way. You're going to obey and respect mommy. And if you don't, you're going to go up to your room. And so she takes him up to his room, and he's screaming, and he's crying, and he's flailing about. And she leaves him in there for a bit. She comes in to see if he's okay. He's not. She goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And suddenly he's starting to calm down. And in our house, when you end a timeout, when you end a time of discipline, we pray together to reunite before us and reunite before the Lord, to confess and repent and make everything whole. And my wife prays with him and says, all right, buddy, it's time to go downstairs. She walks out the door. She opens up the door and says, come on, buddy, you can come downstairs. And then Noah starts crying again. And he's just there. And he's angry. And she goes, no, no, we're, we're all done. You can come downstairs. You don't have to be in timeout anymore. And he just stays in his room. So I got a text like 30 minutes later from my wife. He's still up there. The door's open. He could walk out and just come on downstairs. He doesn't have to sit up there anymore, but he's still sitting there. And you know what I responded to her? I'm going to preach on that this week. You know why I'm going to preach on that this week? Because you know what Jesus has done? He's opened the door. You don't have to stay in there anymore. Your sin that you've been stuck in for years and years and years, it doesn't have to be that way. He says, come on out. And nothing is holding you there except for your flesh, for yourself. And if you can crucify your flesh and crucify your desires and lay them down, you can walk out. 
Jesus on the cross freed you from the power of sin. The door is open. You can walk out. You want to know the best news I can tell someone? What it was like before camp doesn't have to be like what it's like after camp. It doesn't have to be this way anymore. You don't have to walk in these same patterns. Jesus can free you. This is Daniel's burden here. He goes, God, we've brought this on ourselves, but it doesn't have to be that way, Lord. He goes on in verse 15. It says, now, Lord, our God, who brought you out of the people, your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to those around us. Verse 17. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petition of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. This is one of the most beautiful parts of Daniel's prayer. And here's why. Because Daniel knows the reason Jerusalem has been destroyed is because of their sin, their wickedness. They rebelled against God. They didn't listen to God. They didn't walk in God's ways. And therefore, God brought judgment upon it. But do you notice the heart Daniel has for Jerusalem? The heart he has for his people? It's not like, God, they're the worst and they're bad, so just smite them again. Maybe even a second time. Keep smacking them around, God. No, no, no. He says, Lord, look at favor on your desolate sanctuary. Open your eyes and see, God. Would you bring healing? Would you bring peace? See, this week I want to be really clear on something. We have been talking about exile. We've been talking about the culture all around us. And I hope it's become incredibly clear to you that I think the culture that is all around us that you are going home to tomorrow is not a God-honoring culture. It is not a culture that has submitted itself to the lordship of Jesus. And so the opinions and the behaviors and the ways and the practices and the formation that this culture is offering is not leading you toward Jesus. But please make sure you are clear on this. That doesn't mean you are called to hate it. You are not called to hate the people around you. One of the great dangers of coming up to a camp like this and hearing all week about how we're supposed to be faithful to Yahweh, faithful to his word, faithful to God's call in our life, is that we go home and see people in our life, brothers and sisters and friends and teammates and classmates at school who aren't walking with Jesus, and we are filled with rage, anger, contempt, judgment, and condemnation for them. That's my fear for some of you. Like my fear for some of you is you are so stirred up for Jesus right now that you will see sinners and rather than being filled with compassion for them, you will be filled with contempt for them. You will look down on them. You will sneer at them. You will think you are better than them. I remember the first time I ever went on a mission trip internationally. I went to Mexico. I shared this with some of you earlier this week, but um, I remember going to Mexico and I remember seeing people living in little tin shacks. There was no running water, there were no toilets, there was very little food, kids looked hungry, everyone looked desolate, it looked horrible. And like any human being with a pulse would see that kind of poverty, and their heart would break. They would be filled with compassion. If you've ever been on a mission trip to anywhere in the world that is filled with poverty, you know what I'm talking about, where your heart just rips in half, and you feel like you just want to empty your wallet and say anything you need. But I'll never forget flying back or driving back after that mission trip and going back to my high school and seeing the way people acted. And my high school is just like your high school. People weren't honoring God in the way they spoke and the way they lived, the way they treated each other and the way they did. My high school was filled with people who were far from God and living in rebellion against him. But I remember looking at these people and sneering at them, looking down at them, feeling like I was better than them. Like it was like this, I went to a place filled with physical and material poverty and I was filled with compassion and then I went back to a place in my hometown filled with spiritual poverty and I was filled with contempt. And that was a problem with my heart. 
and a problem that needed fixing. Listen, you are going to go home tomorrow to people who aren't Christians. And if your heart toward them is anger, contempt, judgment, and condescension, you've missed it. What you need to have is compassion for them. It says Jesus in the scriptures, he says he looks out on a crowd and he has compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And what some of you need is to look at the people in your life rather than just sneering and looking down at them to say, I wish you knew the God I knew. I wish you knew the forgiveness I've experienced. I wish you know what it's like for the Holy Spirit to fill you up. I wish you knew what it was like to live with purpose and faith and freedom and peace. I wish you knew that to have compassion. And what does compassion drive us to do? Compassion drives us to share the gospel. Compassion drives us to invite other people to experience what we did. Because that's what you do in every other area of your life, right? Like if you watch some killer new show on Netflix, you're not like, I'm just going to keep this to myself and tell no one. No, what do you do? You like immediately text people. You tell people. You're like, oh, have you seen the show? You have seen the, I saw the show. Oh, you should watch the I think you'd love this show, right? You tell people about what you love. Go tell them about Jesus. If you love them, go tell them about him. What does that mean? You go talk to people about Jesus. It doesn't just mean you say vague God things. You talk about Jesus, the Savior who died on the cross. He rose from the dead for their salvation. You tell them about Jesus. You invite them to church. Sometimes people debate. Do you invite them to church or tell them about Jesus? Both. Do both. Bring people with you to church. Tell them about Jesus. Talk about Jesus and watch what happens in your life. One, one final challenge. T tomorrow you'll go down the hill. Um, and some of you will make a post on whatever your social media of choice is. I think it's like MySpace or whatever it is these days. Okay, so, um, so, so listen, listen, listen. Um, when you make that post, um, as a high school pastor for 10 years, I would bring kids up to camp. We would have this incredible encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Lives would be changed. Salvation. Eternities would be changed. Amazing things. I would go down the hill and I would see the social media post. And it would be like, fun in the mountains. It's like, excuse you? Like, this was about Jesus. Talk about the king tomorrow. Like, what if a 1,000 people went down the hill tomorrow, and how many people do each of you know? Let's say it's a 1,000 people. What if a million people tomorrow heard about Jesus because you posted about it? Like, that's the kind of vision you have to have, to say, my life is not about me. It is my own. It is not forfeit. My life belongs to Jesus, and I'm going to talk about him. This is the heart Daniel has. Daniel's heart towards sinners is not contempt, but it's compassion, and I want the same for you. Verse 18 goes on this way. It says, we do not make requests of you, Lord, because we are righteous. But because of your great mercy, hold on to that. But like if you are taking notes, highlight that circle under, God, we're not even talking to you because of our righteousness. God, we're talking to you and relating to you because of your great mercy. I told you earlier in the week, if you are going to live in exile, you need to have a right view of God. And a right view of God will always include a God who is rich in mercy. Here's a thought experiment that I want to use to see whether you actually believe God is rich in mercy. I want you to imagine that your youth pastor pulls you aside tonight. And they pull you aside after cabin time, victory circle, all these different things, and they say, hey, we want to let you know that tomorrow you're not going home on the bus. You're not going home in the vans. You're like, what? Am I staying here at camp? They said, no, no, no. We've arranged, we've, we've arranged a private car for you. You're like, oh, fancy. It's just going to be you and one other person in that car, and you're going to talk the whole way down. And you're like, okay, who's the person in the car? And just work with me in this example here. They say, it's, it's going to be Jesus. He's going to be hanging out in the car with you the whole time. He's, he has some things he wants to talk to you about. And here's my question for you right now. If you heard that you're going to spend several hours in the car with Jesus tomorrow, are you excited or are you terrified? Are you excited and like, I can't wait for that? Or are you like, oh, no, he knows what I did. He's going to talk to me about that. It's going to be awkward. He's just going to shame me. He's going to tell me how horrible I am. It's going to be awful. I'm going to cry the whole time. Which is it you believe? 
Because if you believe this one where you actually think that Jesus is just going to be filled with rage and contempt and anger for you the entire car ride, you don't understand my God. Because if you got to drive in a car for four hours with Jesus, it would be the best four hours of your life. He is filled with mercy to you. He has grace for you. There is more mercy and grace in Jesus than there is ability in you to sin. He is filled with it for you. It is a never-ending fountain. And what does Daniel say here? I'm not praying to you because I'm righteous. I'm praying to you because you're merciful. And then verse 19 says these words. Final words of the prayer. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel has this understanding. He says, God, I want you to move in this world and do amazing things. I want you to use my life for your glory. Not because I'm righteous, but because you're merciful. And because I bear your name. Your people bear your name. Your city bears your name. And here's what I want you to know is true. That has always been the case and it will always be the case. That you, child of God, bear the name of the living God wherever you go. It's like he is branded onto your shirt and everywhere you go, you announce the truth and the goodness of Yahweh and his son Jesus and his resurrection power in your life. That's how it's always worked for the people of God and that's how it works for you when you go home. The mighty thing for you to consider is you're not just going home tomorrow, you're going on mission tomorrow. You've got an assignment from God. His assignment isn't just go back to high school and try to do your best in math class. His assignment is go turn the world upside down for Jesus. Go live faithfully in such a way that the world can see Jesus through you. And I want you to know that Christians and followers of Jesus have done that since the very beginning. I want you to know 2,000 years ago, Jesus launched out his first disciples. And he did it in a culture that was far more hostile than ours. Listen, I've got plenty of complaints about our culture, about laws, about uh, media, entertainment, and everything. But I need you to know that the Roman culture was far more hostile. They took Christians and lit them on fire as torches. They threw them into arenas filled with lions. They cut them off in the head. They crucified them. For some of them, upside down, they'd crucify them. It was a terrible culture. It was filled with hostility. It was uncomfortable. It was unfriendly. It was uncompromising. And right in the midst of that culture, the most insidious culture and hateful and cruel and barbaric, Jesus Christ looks at his first followers, also most of them teenagers, and he says these words. He says, Jesus said to them, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why do I want you to walk with confidence? It's because no matter what happens tomorrow, the next day, the next year, the next decade, Jesus is in charge and nobody gets to challenge him. All authority in heaven and earth. He says, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is what Jesus says, it's the mission he gives his disciples. In the midst of a hostile culture, in the midst of a culture that is uncomfortable, unfriendly, uncompromising, he looks at these 12 teenagers, really 11 at this point, and he tells them, hey, this is what you're gonna go do. You're gonna go into every nation of the world and you're gonna teach people about me and you're gonna proclaim that Jesus, that I died for their sins and rose from the dead for their salvation. You're gonna go tell them about me and you're gonna ask them to respond. And that is what you're invited to do. You are invited to ask people to respond to the good news of Jesus. You have the same mission these disciples were given. Go make disciples of all nations, which starts with your hometown. And that begins making disciples with proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He died for your sins, rose from the dead for your salvation. 
that begins with that invitation. You know what I want to do tonight? I want to give that invite one last time. Because I think there's some of you who knew last night you were supposed to respond, but you didn't. Like something was holding you back, and I'm not mad at you for that. I just know for some of you, you need this moment right now because you actually know that Jesus is Lord. You are confessing him to be Lord. You're believing in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you need this moment right now. And so here's one final invitation this week. One final invitation from me. If right now you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus and you know you need to do that, and you prayed and you've been seeking God and you're calling on the name of the Lord, man, I'm just gonna make this quick right now. I want you to stand to your feet on three. Maybe there's no one. But if there is right now, I want to give you that opportunity. On three, if tonight's the night, you're saying, I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Right now, here's the invitation to stand to your feet on three. Call on the name of the Lord. One, two, three. On your feet. Awesome. It's, it's a beautiful thing that God keeps saving. And, and, and he doesn't just save people in general. He saves you and you and you and you and you and you. Right? Like each individual in this room. He saves each of you because he loves each of you. And Jesus came into this world not to vaguely die for humans, but to die for you, young man. And to die for you and to die for you, young lady. Because he knows you and he loves you and he sees you. And what I want for all of you who are standing right now is to know that there is a God who is with you for all of eternity. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You can have a seat. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus gave a command. He said, go make disciples of all nations. And you know what those first disciples did? They listened to Jesus and they did what he said over and over and over again. One person at a time, seven people at a time, 12 people at a time, two people at a time. For generation after generation after generation, the disciples of Jesus listened to him and did what he said. They listened to Jesus and they did what he said. They didn't get distracted with silly other things over here. They heard Jesus say, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey. And they said, Jesus, if you said it, we're doing it. And they did it over and over and over again. They did it in the Roman empires, even when it meant that they were thrown to lions or burned alive or had to go into hiding. They did it in empires and countries and nations and kingdoms all over this world where they were jailed and beaten and ripped apart and mocked and belittled and their children and their families were killed. Why? Because they wanted to listen to Jesus and do what he says. Why? Because whatever happened to them, their hope wasn't in this world. Their hope was in heaven. Their hope was in the return of the king, the resurrection of the body, the restoration of all things. And generation after generation after generation of Christians listened to God. And they did what he said all the way up until this present day. All the way up until this present day that you, 2,000 years after Jesus, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, gave a mission to his disciples. Here you are. Because someone told you about Jesus. It was a number of years ago. My wife and I were invited by Hume Lake to go speak um, at Hume, Hawaii. And Hume Hawaii is a ministry that Hume Lake does to local and native Hawaiian-speaking people, or uh, like local Hawaiian people who have lived there for a long, long time. And this is an amazing ministry, because you think Hawaii and you think the resorts and the beaches, and that's true, it's beautiful, but there's a people there who are desperate and in need of the gospel. And so Hume does this remarkable ministry out there. And I spoke on all four different islands, but at one point we were speaking on the island of Maui, and the camp we were running was for the town and the people of Hana, 
Now, now if you know Maui at all, you'll know that there's Maui and like the main places, and then there's this place called the Road to Hana. It's this windy kind of desolate road, but by the time you get there, you get to this small little village. And what you don't remember about Hawaii, because you live in California and it's part of the United States, is that Hawaii is smack dab in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the largest body of water in the world. It is the most isolated place you could possibly think of in the entire world. When Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, they didn't even know the Western Hemisphere existed, much less Hawaii, much less a tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific. And here we are, and this was wild. We were in Hawaii, and then we were in Hana, which is one of the most isolated villages in Hawaii, one of the most hard to get to. They're very intentional about their culture. They'll take these visitors, but no one really gets to break in. It's this difficult place to break in. And here we are, my wife and I, in 2017. We're in the most remote island in the middle of the world. We're in the most remote village on the most remote island. And when we took this picture because we just couldn't get over it, here's the picture we took. Towering over the most remote village on the most remote island in the entire world, there's a cross. Why? Because generation after generation after generation of Christians listened to Jesus and did what he said. They did it at great cost to themselves and their families, to their future and their comfort. They said, yes, Jesus, will tell them. Yes, we'll tell the next people. Yes, we'll get on boats and sail across and we'll tell those people and we'll tell the next people and those people will tell the next people. And generation after generation after generation of Christians have been faithful to Jesus. And my question at the end of this week is simple. Are you gonna be part of that chain? Are you gonna be the next generation that is faithful to Jesus, that listens to God and does what he says? Because Jesus gives the great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says these words at the very end. He says, and lo, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. You wanna feel close to Jesus? You wanna feel close to Jesus? You want to fulfill the calling he's given on your life? You want to thrive and you want to have resilience in the midst of a culture that, that is foreign to you, a culture that is against you, a culture you're uncomfortable and uncompromising? You want to have a kind of resilience as you walk and follow after Jesus? Jesus tells you exactly how that happens. He says, I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. Listen to God. Do what he says. Watch what happens when God raises up this generation to operate in faithfulness and exile and God will show himself to be strong. Not because of your righteousness, but because of his mercy and not because of your strength but because of the greatest five words I could speak to you that I will end with this week here are the five words the greatest five words for those of you leaving camp wherever you go it is simply this that God will never leave you let's pray Father in heaven thank you Thank you for tonight and thank you for this champ and thank you for our time in the word. God, I pray for these students as they go down the hill tomorrow. I pray as they get into cars and buses and vans and trucks and they head down the hill. God, I pray that you would fill them with confidence. I pray that you would fill them with peace. I pray that you would fill them with purpose and I pray that you would fill them with a faithfulness to you. May your spirit guide them. May your words saturate their hearts. May your people gather together in a local church filled with the confidence of who you are in the midst of this culture. God, thank you for Daniel and the way he pointed to to Jesus. God, may we in our generation listen to you and do what you say. God, may we be a people who exalt and rejoice in you and you alone, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, enthroned in heaven. God, it's in your name and your son's name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said real loud.